Spanier 82, one day at a time, day 19. But this is unprecedented here. Part one. Yes, we didn't think 22 episodes of a podcast all about one World Cup was enough. We squeezed one more in, but there's a bloody good reason, Mick Foley. A good reason. Yes, yes, we finally found the day that just cannot contain itself. We're, what are we, two and three quarter tournaments in? And we finally come to it. Yeah, because we have Italy versus Brazil on the afternoon on this day, and England, Spain in the evening time. England driving for that World Cup semi-final spot. We couldn't we couldn't really do justice to both of them, particularly Italy Brazil, if we were letting England Spain kind of butt in on the show. So yeah. Split it. Split it. Cut yeah. it in two, sunder it, Solomon style, and then make it work. I wouldn't mind we've turned it upside down as well because we're covering England Spain in this episode, which is the second match of the day. Kieran, how are you? Come sta, mes amigos. Come sta too. Does that work? I don't think it does. Anyways, we have a special guest who we'll introduce in a couple of seconds' time. But, first of all, Mick, just wanted to lay this out for people. Spain, the hosts, they're done. This daft format means they still have to play a game. Uh, England are chasing a semi-final. Yeah, the cursed three-team second phase group format. Yeah, basically, right. Spain are gone because they lost to West Germany 2-1 in this group. So now, England have to... First of all, they have to win. Right, they got to win. Mm-hmm. But they have to score at least two goals. They could win 3-1, they could win 3-2, they could win 4-1, they could win 4-2, 4-3, 5-4, 6-5, so whatever you want, right? Yeah. But they cannot win 1-0 and they cannot win 2-1. If they win 2-1, that's exactly what West Germany did to Spain, which leaves us in a drawing lot situation. And the English are already up in arms because they thought that have got to this stage where everything was even, goal difference points, everything, that it would go on where you finished in the first group stage. But when they went and asked about it, FIFA said, oh, no, 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 no. None of that matters anymore. We'll be drawing lots. So they're in a bit of a temper over this, but they know what they have to do. They have to score at least two goals and win. Not bad. Mick, you didn't do a bad job there, right? But I, I hope you don't get insulted by saying Martin Tyler did a better job than you did in the commentary. In fact, Martin Tyler did one of the best jobs ever of starting a commentary and in two sentences summing up a complicated situation. It was glorious, I have to say. He What's nailed complicated? It. Well, I know. One, but team's playing a dead rubber, uh, one, one team's playing a dead rubber and the other is playing the most important match they've played in 16 years. What could be complicated? That's why you should be co-commentator. Are you saying I talk too much, Rob? Is, is that what you're saying? Maybe this is a conversation we should have had off air, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> like it's it's very late in the it's very late in the World Cup for us to be having a, a deep and meaningful chat about the strengths and weaknesses of our contributions to this podcast. Not at all, Mick, not at all. Uh yeah, so let's do it. Let's get stuck into this glorious game, England chasing a semi-final spot. Spain nil. England nil. We have someone on who technically is an England fan, also is objectively uh, able to study English football. Our special guest uh, for today, Paul Hayward, award-winning journalist, author, uh, specifically author of England Football, the biography, 1872 to 2022, and currently contributing editor at Tortoise. Very welcome along, Paul. It's great to have you in here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. 
Yeah, well, you can see why we needed you. And we waited until game five of this World Cup for England because we could have had you on on day one and you could have waxed lyrically about an amazing 3-1 victory over France. We could have talked you, to, you could have talked us through all the ups and downs off the field and on the field all the way through, which we, we can definitely reflect on because we would like your thoughts on the whole tournament. But this is the day. This was the day where England, possibly because of a conservative approach to the uh, West Germany game, had put themselves in a bit of a corner going into this Spanish game, needing a 2-0 win and uh, went about it in an odd way, I think, if I can set you up in that way uh, from an attacking point of view. Nil-nil in the end, but yeah, let's have a chat about it. Well, yeah, this World Cup is back in the news, really, for the English, because Gareth Southgate has been talking about how he fell in love with World Cup football in 1982, uh, rushed home from school, I think he was still in Crawley then, uh, rushed home to fill his wall chart in and, and became... He, 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 Brian Robson was already his favourite player. And of course, that goal after 27 minutes, 27 seconds, I should say, against France was, you know, transformational, really. You've never seen an England World Cup campaign brought to life that quickly and that spectacularly. And it's very much it's very much the, the core of uh, Southgate's love for the World Cup. And he's, he's still there 40 years later, of course, trying to win the World Cup with England. But it's also this World Cup's a, a, a source of angst to English fans. That may be why they keep wearing these Admiral 1982 shirts. You see them everywhere in the streets and on the terraces. I think it sort of represents a, a sort of a missed opportunity. And the thing that tortures the English is that they went all the way through that World Cup, won three games, drew two and still went home. I talked to Viv Anderson, who was the first uh, uh, black uh, player to be given a full um, uh, international cap uh, in 1978 by Ron Greenwood. And he says... He said that team, that 82 team, would give today's team a, a run for their money. And there's a, there's a tremendous affection for it, I think, in the English mythology of, of World Cups. And the Spain game uh, is interesting for uh, all sorts of reasons, one of which was the missed opportunity. The other one, of course, being Keegan and Brooking coming on late in the game, but not being able to quite turn it around in England's favour. Yeah, it's, it's a stunning story. I mean, we have genuinely, Paul, been really impressed by loads of different elements of England. Like even coming into this game, Steve Coppel doesn't play. He's one of the players that popped up in our team of a day multiple times. Brian Robson, it's been a joy to watch him. Like we'll talk to you some more of those elements, but like none of what you're saying here feels overstated in any way, having watched England through the whole World Cup. Like there's a real sense that, wow, this team could have, just could have done something more. Yeah, we've done that a few times uh, in England's history. Um, gone back to look at a team and say, Christ, how did that happen? Yeah. How did that team get knocked out? Why didn't that team win the trophy? We certainly did it from 2002 to 2006 with the golden generation. Uh, we're still doing it now, really. Uh, and that 82 team is wreathed in nostalgia. Uh, I think, you know, Ron Greenwood was an underrated England manager in a way. He was a, he was a positive, creative England manager who had a, a number of very, what you would call modern creative players at his disposal. Uh, and, and after the wreckage of the Don Reavy years, uh, Ron Greenwood really stabilised things, won three British home championships, uh, qualified for two tournaments and delivered this team in his last tournament, his last run out in 1982 in Spain, delivered a team with some sort of charisma, really, you know, and some presence. And again, I go back to that goal after 27 seconds against France. If you do that in a tournament, you set a standard for yourself. You set a bar for yourself. You've certainly raised expectations. And they largely lived up to them, uh, except that there was a stalemate against West Germany in the first game of the second group stage. What a ludicrous concept that was. Mm -hmm. uh, and really, that put them under pressure in the Spain game. And that's where it all went wrong. 
Uh, just, Paula, I, I'm intrigued by your reference to Garrett Southgate, because in many ways, when I have read about Ron Greenwood through this process, Garrett Southgate feels like a very modern version of Ron Greenwood. Yeah, he could be. Well, uh, when you think that uh, it was really Brian Clough that the, the, the country wanted in 1977, he was interviewed for the job. Uh, the FA probably set him up to fail. He turned up at nine o'clock in the morning for the interview and, and, and swore heavily and said, if I get the job, you know, uh, you won't expect me to be turning up at nine o'clock on a Monday morning, will you? Um, swear word, swear word, swear word. And Sir Harold Thompson, the very kind of august um, uh, chairman of the FA was taken aback, you know, listened to Clough, heard him out, and but there was never a sense they were ever going to give the job to him. And I think it was performance art for Brian Clough. He went in there knowing it was a it was a, a, a doomed exercise. But the job went to Greenwood, who was a, who was a safer figure. Clough called him boring. He certainly wasn't boring. His work at West Ham was quite distinguished. But there was always that legacy, really. There was, always that, there was always that cloud over Greenwood that he wasn't Brian Clough. And, you know, that was difficult for a number of England managers in that period. But even Bobby Robson um, suffered from that. So Greenwood, you know, went about trying to instill a kind of sophisticated brand of football. But he didn't really have that showbiz presence that the English public still demanded at that point. It's interesting to see the relationship and, of course, the relationship of the England manager with the media becomes a very, very strong presence through the storyline from, well, in our living memory, coming forward from the, from the early 80s on until now, really. At this point, it's interesting because Ron Greenwood is, I wouldn't say he's at war with the media, but it's they're all getting irritated with each other. They're all a bit annoyed to the point that the Spanish game, before the Spanish game, he doesn't announce the team. He leaves it to Glenn Curtin, his press officer, to come out, announce the team. And he doesn't appear at all, which is actually reported in the newspapers as a sort of a, what's he doing? What's he doing? This is crazy. Ridiculous. <laughs> How dare he? But keep in mind, I mean, the other thing that would have happened after the German game himself and Juk Derval. The German manager kept the media waiting for 50 minutes. Imagine, Paul, and this is shocking. 50 minutes we were left waiting. And when they did turn up, all the Germans had gone and they didn't come back. The press officer went out to get them and said, no, we're not going back. Let's just wait in 50 minutes. And a small number of English journalists went back for Greenwood. He, I think he made a remark like, I've never seen a press conference this small before because he's been so long. But we've just like, there was also, we've discussed this before. There was also... An interview the following day after the German game with Don Howe, Ron Greenwood and Big Jack, Jack Charlton, beside the swimming pool at the team hotel. And it's a fascinating watch because you have Charlton attacking it's the boys. It's not an interview, it's a... Oh no. It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's not an interrogation, it's like a... It's three of the foremost coaching minds in English football yeah. verbally producing a thesis. Yeah. It's amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm saying this just to put a bit of context on how England are going to play in this game. So you've got, you've got Ron Greenwood and Don Howe sort of, I don't know what they did. They're not quite defending themselves. They're kind of nearly attacking Jack going, who do you think? Like, you used to be a player. You used to be a manager. What are you now? You know, you're just like this media person. What, you know what we're going through here. But I mean, essentially against Germany, like they, 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 they froze because they got the team maybe a half an hour, an hour before the game. They got freaked out by the fact that the Germans were playing five across the midfield. And they also got freaked out by the fact that someone gave them a videotape of uh, Kaltz, the German right back, who suddenly they decided was the best crosser of the ball in the World Cup. And they got completely freaked by this and seemed to kind of shape their thinking that way. So what I'm saying is that instead of going after the Germans, who are by this point now are really getting away with it in this World Cup, instead of going after them, 
they drew nil all. They, they have Jack Charlton getting going after them by the side of a swimming pool for not being more attacking and more exciting. And they can't figure this out because they've gone on so they've been on a long unbeaten run to this point. And they obviously remain unbeaten after this game. So they cannot understand the media reaction. They cannot understand the reaction of the likes of Jack Charlton. They just they don't get it. They think that they've I mean, Green would make the point. If we had if I had told you twelve months ago, he says to Jack, that we would draw nil nil with West Germany at the World Cup, the country'd be delighted. But the country is not delighted. The country is going, What's going on? We beat France three one. And in terms of goals, we've now gone from three Two against Czechoslovakia, one against Kuwait, to zero against West Germany. So what's what's it? Suddenly they're in this. Suddenly they're in a corner that you know you're kind of going. Oh, and they're missing. I just say now, Brooking, Keegan are on the bench, but now they're also missing Steve Koppel, three of their four best players, I would suggest. And all of a sudden they're in this corner. Yeah, it's interesting. The Jack Charlton context in 1977, somebody he never said who, but somebody told him to apply for the England job. So he got a piece of paper out. Do you remember that when he used to write letters? Yes, a yes. Piece of Basil and Bond and a pen, and he wrote. <laughs> he wrote. Would to you the have FA. had? Would you have had from the desk of Jack Charlton at the top of what I wonder? Well, you would have so. Jack he, was a worker. He, he must have had some sort of embossing on the letterhead. <laughs> so, um, but it didn't do him any good because he wrote to the FA and applied for the job, having been told to apply for it, and didn't even get a reply. And Jack Charlton never really got over that did he so i would imagine that in 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 82 uh his criticisms of ron greenwood may have been entirely valid but i'm sure they they slightly came from a place of you know um bitterness about the way he was treated in 77 and he was treated badly he should have been given an interview of course um so um there is there is that context to it and ron greenwood was tremendously prickly uh he he, he was um he hated uh media criticism and his and his big bugbear was the fact that He'd been criticised at West Ham because he'd played lovely football and won nothing. And now he was being criticised for playing uh, pragmatic or strategic football uh, and being told he was boring. You know, so his his constant refrain was, which is it? What do you want? Do you want me to go out and sort of commit Harry Carey or do you want me to sit back and play proper tournament football with defensive and attacking balance? And, and Ron Greenwood was never, never comfortable in that uh, spotlight. He tried to resign on a plane on the way back from a qualifier and the players all got together and talked him out of it. Statement was being prepared. They got to the luggage carousel and he changed his mind because the players had begged him not to go. So so he was quite sort of emotionally volatile and he was quite, uh, you know, combative. He was a kind of romantic but combative man. And I would imagine that he went into that West Germany game thinking, right, we've done the hard part. We've won three games in a row convincingly. And, and now we just have to be cautious against West Germany because by then, by 82, um, England would have been quite fearful of, of Germany and German football. The whole dynamic had changed since 66. 66 wasn't the, the beginning of English dominance over Germany. It was the end of it. Uh, it all went downhill from there. Germany went on and won tournaments. England you know, went down the toilet in the 1970s. So, so uh, there would have been a there would have been a sort of a phantom in the English mind for that West Germany game. So I can see why he didn't go into it thinking, well, we'll just go in there and blow them away. And dare I say it, there's a second phantom at all times, which is Clough. There's a spectre of Clough over everything. Um, and had he been able to take the post, enforce his philosophy, his strategy at all times, without people constantly referring to, well, Clough might have done. He wouldn't have been so prickly with the media and with the fans and with 
other stakeholders. True, there was always this implication that he was the compromised candidate, you know, the, 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 the safe candidate. And actually, Gareth Southgate sort of laboured under that impression as well, or that, that you know, that, that perception, um, this idea that they'd appointed Gareth Southgate because Sam Allardyce had been such an unmitigated disaster, you know, lasted 67 days and one game. And what the FA needed was a was an FA man to come in and settle things down and save the FA from any more embarrassment. Gareth Southgate is obviously much better than that, but that, there was that perception at the time, and that perception was applied to Ron Greenwood too. Is, is it significant given the the interview that Charlton has with them? I know you're saying that there's, there's a potential frisk on there, but he wasn't one of the guys that was called in as part of this massive platoon of the great managers of English football to take the B team and the under-21 team. And, and I mean, ultimately, it has huge consequences for Ireland because he decides he's going to take his philosophy and apply it to another national team. Do you think that would have been how they... Because everybody's got an agenda in that three-way conversation. Don Howe's very aggressive. Ron's doing one thing. Jack's trying to get across his opinion. But he's not one of the guys that they've had in this core that they've created of of english managers yeah i find the jack charlton story still interesting because you know when he went on desert island discs and sue lawley said to him you know was 66 the greatest day of your life and he said not really because you know he said he came into the group late he was a, he was a late arrival the core of ramsey's men had already been formed ramsey didn't really like him didn't talk to him took exception to him quite quickly and charlton said that winning the title with leeds uh by a then record margin was the greatest day in his footballing career then of course he gets rejected by england at, uh by the fa at management level there's a feeling over here that that ireland was always a kind of happy exile for jack charlton he felt happier in england and more valued than he ever did in england England. People portrayed him quite often as a sort of agricultural centre-half, one of the workhorses of the 1966 win. And it was quite gratifying in a way to see him find a, a, a new life, another world in Ireland, a, a, a place uh, where he felt much more appreciated. I, I find that re really interesting, that whole story, you know, and it was retold, obviously, when uh, when he died. Uh, there was never a place in the England hierarchy for him, but then he wasn't alone in that because the FA committee men, the Blazers, uh, were very protective of their power and did everything they could to, to exclude anybody with any real footballing knowledge. Like, I remember at the time when he passed away doing stuff, doing stuff about Jack and just going back and looking looking at that mid-80s period and 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 there's absolutely no doubt I think that he felt that English football was being betrayed I, I would say that the values of English football were being betrayed and it, it is it is you can hear it it is audible he's on the co-commentary on this game with Martin Tyler that the, the feed that we watched and you can hear all the language that we are exposed to in the late 80s going into the early 90s is all here you know he's, he's pushing England to hit early balls get runners up around Paul Mariner play your football around the box hit hit balls into put the him corner under little, pressure. Little, put, uh, we're only short <laughs> to put him under pressure it's like little balls into the corner get Spain turned you know all this stuff and it's that's fine but I mean it's no, no question or shadow of a doubt I, I, I think in these years and obviously he's going to manage Newcastle after this uh, before he takes on Ireland it, there's, no, there's no question it, it, Ireland is a Ireland is an opportunity for Jack to express the values that he feels have been neglected 
in England and he does not see Irish football. This is an entirely different podcast now, but he does not see Irish football. <laughs> he does not see Irish football, no more than Giovanni Trapattoni and others after him. They do not see Irish football as having a, a distinct identity in of itself. It is it is a wing of British football and therefore all the players play in Britain. So therefore my ideas will work and I will show that they work and I will show that with even a limited group of players, I can take these guys as far and imagine what I could have done with England. Yeah, and of course, uh, most people in England would re- would resist his characterisation of, of the English game because uh, with, the, with the players that they were producing, even in, in 82, uh, that would have been a, a tremendous waste for, you know, Trevor Brooking and people to of hit course. long balls down of the course. channel and Glenn, and Glenn Hoddle. So, yeah, it's a curious, you, you'd, you'd probably call that a, Part delusion on Jack Charlton's uh, part. I mean, the Leeds teams he played in didn't play that that way. Uh, Don Reeves' Leeds didn't play that way, and and England, England in '66 were a were a, a functional team. They weren't a beautiful team, but they they certainly weren't a long ball team. So I sometimes wonder where where Jack Charlton got that idea from that British football was was direct and and channel balls and and four four two and big strikers and knockdowns uh, i'd never really heard that explained really where, where did jack get that from but it, it certainly it certainly wasn't the way ahead for england teams it's only now really that england teams are starting to look like uh consistently i should say like the the, the mainstream european countries and it's it's long overdue i i think his his premise is based upon he sees it as a way for english teams to win because if you think about what he spoke about subsequently, which, you know, Continentals like to play out from the back, but they can't, so put them under pressure. <laughs> I think it was a real, this is a pragmatic way which will win us competitions. I think that's where, but, but we've, we've definitely gone into a whole other podcast, so let's bring it back to Ron Greenwood. <laughs> yeah. and, and the inimitable Don Howe, because they've painted themselves into a corner with this game, but we've watched all of Spain's games. The hosts have not been impressive. There is an opportunity for an England team to qualify for a World Cup semi-final here. In the first World Cup they've qualified for since 1962. Where does it all go wrong? Uh, <laughs> I feel like um, I feel like I'm in a in Groundhog Day here because <laughs> I've, uh, over the years I've studied. <laughs> I've studied yeah, I've, well, in the sense that I've studied a lot of individual games. Uh, over the years, the tournament exit games and thought, what the hell went wrong there? You know, because prior to uh, Gareth Southgate taking over, England won six knockout games in tournaments from 1968 to 2016. Southgate alone has won six uh, between uh, 2018 and 2022. So Southgate has won 50% of, of, of the tournament games, knockout games that England have won since uh, 1968. That's a that's a mind-blowing statistic, and when I when I tweeted it the other day, as a sort of you know one of those idle tweets that you send out, thinking that one person might be interested in it, it went completely crazy because people couldn't believe this number: six knockout games. So, so this I mean this is a, this is a second group stage game. So, do you want to call that a knockout game? Well, it was in the sense that England got knocked out by by a nil-nil draw. In the grand tradition of faults objects in modern football we'll call it a false quarterfinal yes <laughs> yeah, yeah. seems reasonable a, fa- a false knockout can we call it a false knockout? Yes, <laughs> um, yeah i mean i'm looking at the team the team you could argue about individual changes the fact that Koppel didn't play in the spain game uh, the fact that hoddle wasn't used really as he wasn't used much by uh, bobby robson either in tournament of football 
that's significant. I think we could talk about that for a while. But yeah, I want to talk about that for a while, Paul. I mean, I, I like I thought I saw Glenn Hoddle on the bench on the five up, and I was like, why are you even bothering at this stage, Ron? Will you just pick someone else? Do you have a notion of bringing him on? Well, um, the, Ron Greenwood had the same reservation about um, Glenn Hoddle that Bobby Robson had, which was that he lacked. Um, stamina in a game he lacked authority in, in, in international football so Greenwood and Robertson were both they both liked the the beautiful pass you know the the door opening part but they didn't think that was enough and they and they also felt that sometimes Hoddle would play that pass for his own benefit uh, and for his own showreel and that he had these amazing uh, qualities that very few English players had ever had but it, at international level when you need to win and you'll be judged by the outcome. They both felt that he lacked the stamina and the application to be, you know, a 90-minute first-choice player. And there's that pattern all the way through Hoddle's career. He's become the he's become the kind of lost prophet of English football. And when people want to kind of berate the English for their lack of creativity, creativity, they always seize on Hoddle and say, "Well, there's the, there's the proof." Glenn Hoddle sat on the subs bench for year after year. Therefore, the English are. A, a sort of pagan footballing tribe, you know. I think we saw though the Hoddle effect. Was it the Kuwait game, lads? He played. He, he started against Kuwait. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he did start against and Kuwait. Brian Robson was injured, and like, it's a poor performance. Obviously, England change up the team because they're through. But you can see he's not going to. He's he's not going to be starting in this World Cup, and even to the point when when Coppel isn't playing, it's a difficult. It's a difficult one for England to juggle. So they end up putting Trevor Francis out on the right hand side, who has been improving throughout this World Cup, but now he's out on the right hand side, which is a bit of a bit of a difficult spot for him. Um, you've got Graham Ricks over on the other side, who. I I just it beggars belief that he's in an England team. To me, I don't understand it. I th- I think if we go on any more about Graham Ricks, people are going we've to, think to we pick on him. Yeah, we've got yeah, to stop. We've got to stop. Like it's just become a running player. feature of the tournament. Why yeah, is Graham but, Ricks I playing? I don't understand. But like I th- I think I think fundamentally, like England go at this really full of energy, full of invention. They they do everything right. But fundamentally, and I don't know how you feel about this, I just feel that there are four or five players on the team who just aren't good enough in 1982, and that's what holds them back. I don't think McMillan's was good enough. Ricks is clearly not good enough. Uh, Paul Mariner is a ter- terrific striker. But just at that moment, when you reach that moment where the rubber hits the road and you need a really, really world-class striker to finish finish chances... He, he and I know he's on a, he's on a record break and run a goal for England. Yeah, he was. But he just he doesn't do it here. Tony Woodcock comes in. They've been calling Tony Woodcock Lash at training because he's just firing shots in from all over. He 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 doesn't play great when he comes on against the Germans, and he does his best here, but it's not it's just not up to the best. And Trevor Francis, who I think is a terrific talent, is playing out on the right hand side. It's not until Trevor Brooking comes on, and to a lesser extent, much lesser extent, Kevin Keegan, but certainly Brooking, that the team starts to really knit together in gel, and it looks. Uh, looks I like would puzzle one other one, Mick, where I think they got the decision wrong, and I think that was Peter Shilton. I think the the seesawing between Shilton and Clements that when it eventually fell to one side, the mistake that was made was giving it to Shilton over Clements. I, I, and we've already discussed for the Q8 game, Peter, I'd like to try Ray in the game against Kuwait. No boss, I'm staying between the sticks. You know, there was an opportunity to find out and put that to the test in the World Cup and Shilton's the one that blocks it off. Yeah, I mean, when I, I spoke to a number of players uh, for my book about that, uh, Colin Todd, for example, said it was uh, ridiculous 
you know, and all the players knew it was ridiculous to alternate between the two goalkeepers. But I mean, in fairness to Shilton, in the game we're talking about, he didn't he didn't concede, obviously. So that you know, the goalkeeping wasn't a factor in that game specifically. I wonder what it what it, what influence it had as well on the team, knowing that that two sort of highly highly influential match winning players were missing all the way through. Uh, what 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 that whole drama did to the team, the team's sense of itself. I mean, Brooking and Keegan had got uh, Ron Green with the job full time when they scored in a World Cup qualifier against Italy in 1977. So he had a lot to thank them for and he called them his two trumps. And before this game against Spain, he said to them, look, if things aren't going well, I'll send you on. They were both injured. You know, Brooking had a groin injury. Uh, Keegan had a bad back. He'd flown to Hamburg for treatment. They tried to keep it secret. It got out. You know that's not that's not a that's not a good vibe when two of your your two trumps are injured and you're thinking I might have to throw them on against Spain. That that creates a certain negativity. I'd have thought in the in the dressing room, um, and he did throw them on. Uh, Keegan, of course, was wasn't ready for it and and fluffed his chance, ended up on his knees. There's that, there's that amazing image of him going down on his knees after he makes an absolute pig's ear of a header after coming on. That was the big chance, you know, and he couldn't take it because he came on cold and he wasn't ready and, he, and it was it was a sort of just a, it was a stab at winning the game. Brooking, on the other hand, played these lovely passes and showed what he might have contributed throughout the, uh, the tournament for England. And, and still, you know, the reactions I get from people are, less about Keegan than Brooking, you know, or had, had Trevor Brooking played in every game uh, in that World Cup, England would have gone on and won it. That's a massive supposition, but it, it certainly would have helped. <laughs> I think the, the the Brooking element is, in, is is so interesting because I think for us, certainly for, for, for me, I, I remember Trevor Brooking at the very end of his career. So I wouldn't have been old enough to quite remember him in his pomp in the 70s and into the early 80s. But I mean, when he comes on, like he's such a beautiful passer of the ball. He can see things, you know, he's one of those wonderful midfielders who can see things a half a second before they happen. And that's all you need at that level. And he he, he even gets through, he gets through for a shot on Arcanada as well. Uh, which is, it's a terrific save from Arcanada, who's been having an awful World Cup. And this, this is the first game he didn't flap it back into a, full, to a, to a forward. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, which is another but, context, really, Paul, because like you are talking about that, England create a lot of chances in this game. Yeah, I mean, the point you've just made, Mick, it just occurred to me as you were saying it, that, that Trevor Brooking was a better Glenn Hoddle in many ways. You know, Trevor, I, I would argue Absolutely. that Trevor Brooking was more consistently effective in games than Glenn Hoddle ever was, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and Brooking uh, didn't get the success his talent deserved, really, at club or uh, international level, because he played at West Ham for so long. But there was a fabulous uh, elegance and intelligence about him. Played with his head up. He every, when he received the ball, he was already making the pass in his head, the next pass, and um, and he had a physical presence. I think that he wasn't a tackler, he wasn't a scrapper, but he, he had a physical presence that, that Glenn Hoddle lacked, although Hoddle was a big man. Yeah, so it, it's, it's, and that was his last game. I mean, it, it, it's, it, Brooking and Keegan didn't play for England again, and Ron Greenwood didn't manage England again. It, it's, it's remarkable to think that those two players left the stage in that agonising, frustrating nil-nil draw, having only played uh, 26 minutes and come on half fit, you know, unable to save the country, which is what everybody wanted and expected them to do. Many, many days ago now, uh, I, in researching the first England game, looked at Ron Greenwood's obituary. And one of the lines that was in it was that he was over loyal. He could be accused of being over loyal to Brooking and Keegan. 
Um, you know, and and throughout this World Cup, he has resisted that, and yet it is the line that makes it into his obituary. <laughs> yeah, but like yeah, but like I mean, who who could blame him? I mean, when you look at the quality of Brooking when he comes on, the Keegan Heller, as you've described there, Paul, is a, it's it's a horror show. Um, it is the moment. It's about oh, twenty. Robson's assist on that chance. I yeah. mean, it would have been one of the all-time great assists. Like it's beautiful. It, there's oh. some beautiful moments, and Brooking, a lovely little ball to Paul Mariner, gives it to Robson. A great cross, gets to the byline, and actually has a touch at the byline before he crosses just to tee the ball up for himself. Dinks it up for Keegan, and just the way when you look at it from behind the goal, the way the defenders and the goalkeeper's positioned, it's an open goal, mm. and he misses the header. It kind of bounces off the curls and floats away to the right hand side and it's gone and he, as you say he's on his knees it was, it was you know it's ironic the way these things go or it was a coincidental or ironic we won't get into an Alanis Morissette wormhole <laughs> here but um, Keegan made the reference or the, he made a comment the previous day that the worst thing I can imagine he said is a place on the bench and being called in for the last five minutes to save the game <laughs> oh dearie me but like <laughs> like just a word on the Spanish lads before we go any further because as Kieran mentioned earlier on they, oh, they the atmosphere, Mick, the atmosphere is Rockish, like every time Alonso does anything that is in any way not one hundred percent. Like I think Alonso goes through one of the most abusive moments I've ever seen in a football match because he spends whatever ninety minutes out there being abused. I think they knew who his son was going to be. Yeah, yeah. Can can you can you grow Jabby up quicker? Can we somehow do something? Is there any way we can give him a miracle grow or something? Put a miracle grow on his weed a bit. Like he um he misses a lot of chances, Alonso. I mean, actually, when you when you when you break it down, when you really boil it down, they probably both teams had equal a number of chances, give or take. Um, what not? Like yeah, I mean, great atmosphere. But, but England but I mean, have much better quality, and that has been oh, yeah. the story of this tournament. Like, and we talked about the rule changes coming because an unbeaten team goes home. Yeah, but I mean, we've seen Spain humbled against Honduras, mm-hmm. humbled by Northern Ireland, not particularly impressive against Yugoslavia. Like, other than the World Cup that's going on, you know, in that place in the Middle East, I can't think of a poorer host. In my lifetime. They'll be really poor. And this is, I mean, in this game, there's things that are different about them, I think, um, compared to the other matches that we've watched. They're nowhere near as violent, for one thing. Um, <laughs> the, the only, the there's only two first. moments. Apart from, I mean, and I mean, to be honest with you, there's a perfect opportunity for violence here because Brian Robson is playing. The Germans mm. have already tried to kick him out of the tournament. And I mean, after f- five or six minutes, Tendio comes out and just plants an elbow on Brian Robson's face and just leaves him on the ground. Alonso, Alonso Sr. has a hack on him after uh, about five minutes later. But that's kind of it then. I mean, you're waiting for Alessanko to come out and start, you know, throwing himself around. He actually went up for a ball with Shilton and Shilton came away without a broken nose. I was amazed. Like, these guys really... Put, seem They're to out of the tournament back. now, Mick. The heart's not in it. I, the heart's not in it anymore. What is you know, it? Isn't it amazing? We're having this conversation 40 years um, on and everybody now is looking at the Spain stats at the... 2022 World Cup, and they're talking about this 78% possession, um, <laughs> six shots, one shot on target, you know, a thousand passes, none of it uh, effective, none of it productive. So Spain go out uh, to Morocco, passing themselves to death with this kind of fundamentalist tiki-taka approach, and everybody's saying, God, for God's sake, everybody's sick of this, you know, watching the ball go backwards and forwards across the pitch. 
I mean, contrast that with the Spanish tradition of 40 years ago, which was much more combative and aggressive and direct. Where you know? is the butcher of Bilbao? Where is the butcher of Bilbao? I mean, England had Terry Butcher, so I mean, so he, they, they, had a, they had a butcher as well, you know. And so maybe some of the Spanish players looked at Terry and thought, maybe not today. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll keep it nice today. Well, he certainly, Butcher certainly, I can't remember what Spanish player it was, but he kicked him into the stand. And Martin Tyler, God bless him. Right, he got the ball. Yeah, yeah, he did, Martin, after going through about four inches of <laughs> calf. Jesus. Oh, I, 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 play, I played in press games with Terry Butcher, and uh, he would treat a press game against the, you know, the Albanian press or the or the Polish press oh, I would no, like... no differently to a full England international. We'd be in the tunnel, and he'd be shouting at you and telling you to pull your socks up, and you'd be thinking, Christ almighty, Terry, give me a break. You know, I just went, I just came for a kickabout, and by the way, I'm hungover. Will you stop? Will you stop shouting at me? <laughs> <laughs> be there. Yeah, Satrusta uh, guy was really impressing me. And, and, and just exactly like you say, Mick, just to, to extend your point, the way they were playing, just you're like, where was this? Yeah, look, there's a couple of things changed. So they bring back in Satrusta who didn't play very well in the previous match he played in, which I think might have been Northern Ireland. My brain is now turned to mush when it comes to the Spanish and most other international football teams from 1982. But I think it was, I think it was Northern Ireland. Well, it's just that the statistics we collected in those games were horrendous fouls as opposed yes. to ticky-tacker passes. A thousand fouls. A thousand fouls. I think they did a thousand passes during the entire Franco regime. I think that was that was. The and even we passes. can't call them fouls they, because they weren't awarded as fouls. I they, know. They'd be red cards now. Unbelievable. But uh, Sachusiki did play very well in this game. But I think the big thing was Zamora. The one player that the English were very conscious of was Zamora runs midfield. And it does. It's a little bit like, not the same, but it's a little bit like brooking passes, picking the passes. When Zamora gets the ball and starts to run in England and you know space starts to open up but they didn't play Juanito our old friend Juanito they didn't play Keeney just over a year since Keeney got kidnapped by the way I don't think we mentioned that before have we? We might have to do a separate podcast you on Keeney's kidnapping. You may think yeah. we cover every single corner we can possibly cover in 22 episodes, but we don't. There's, there's always one. Yeah, he was kidnapped. <laughs> Google that one, folks. Keeney was one, kidnapped yeah. a year he before was the World 25 Cup. Days. No, we hear about the 1982 World Cup than we do. Go on, try. He had 25 days in a cellar in 1981. Wow. C- came out Barcelona and his team didn't win a game in the time he was in the, in the cellar. Uh, and he came out and that's the poor man. Anyway, he didn't press charges or anything like that. It was kind of... Anyway, it's a hell of a story. But, uh, yeah, so they're just, I mean, the atmosphere is weird. The Spanish fans are giving away tickets outside the ground. The guys who are in there, as you say, Rob, make a fair old noise. But it's just the whole thing just smacks of a missed opportunity. Maybe a missed opportunity for everybody. Not that Spain deserved a beating, and don't get me wrong, but the entire tournament is a missed opportunity for Spain. Uh, I had a look at the 1984 European Championship final team just for contrast. I mean, there's only four players from this team line out against France in two years' time in the European Championship final. So it's a, it's a moment of change for them. Things are, you know, things have to change because they can't, they can't keep going on the way they are. I mean... And that's the other thing about England, actually, and Spain, I suppose, to the, to the same degree. They both go after the game. Like, none, like, the Spanish, even though the commentary suggests they're sitting back, I think the Spanish are quite, you know, when they get the ball, they're quite constructive with it and they try and score. But there isn't a single chance in the last 10 minutes. Kevin Keegan has a header to nowhere with 10 minutes to go. Yeah. And that's it then. And the, sh- the shutters come down on the whole thing. And... I think, I think England, I think, Paul, I think when that miss comes from Keegan, I think the entire group know that's it. We're gone. 
Yeah, and, and it was in a long tradition of England taking injured players to tournaments, of course. Uh, I've done that a few times. Uh, you know, Wayne Rooney with his metatarsal and so on in 2006. <laughs> As he said in his Sunday Times column, you know, when he, he got his foot mended and then he went out on the training ground and tried to ping this shot from 40 yards and did his did his groin, uh, which was black and blue. And a couple of days later, he didn't tell anybody. So he was, he was in a right mess, you know, and... Uh, England have always done that. I'm sure other countries do as well, but uh, there's always a feeling that England are kind of prone to that temptation. And Kevin Keegan uh, in 82 turned out through no fault of his own to be no use, but created a drama with this, With this, um, you know, they hired a car and sort of it was all very cloak and dagger. Yeah, we, we, could, we covered that, but he had to yeah. drive himself in a tiny yeah, little car. Yeah, drove himself to the airport and then flew to Hamburg and then did the same on the way back and they tried to cover it up. I mean, that's not, you know, if, if, if that's your guy coming on um, to score a header with 10 minutes left, uh, you know, you're asking for trouble, aren't you, really? Or, or, or that German doctor must be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, he couldn't twist very well to get the header, control the header, could he? So his his back was obviously still playing up. He was determined, though. I, I mean, he was determined to be around for 86, Kevin Keegan, at that point. He was like, ah, I'll be around. I'll be there. I'll be yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. He was a great player, and it was a, it was a quite slightly sad way for him to go out with a, with a missed header like that. But, you know, his, his reputation is safe despite that. It's really interesting the number of players on this England team that go into management afterwards. Mm. And like, if you think about it, two of the squad go on to manage two. Yeah, manage England. So Keegan and Hoddle, have, have I got that right? Yeah. Like Terry yeah. Butcher is still managing teams. Mm. Brian Robson's been in management. Trevor Francis. Trevor Francis. You know, like the, you don't see that kind of... So I wonder how much... Greenwood influenced the players in that regard subsequently. Yeah, well, he was always he always saw himself as a as a teacher and educator because he was very much a disciple of Walter Winterbottom, and he stuck up for Walter Winterbottom when a lot of the players used to you know slag him off for being a professor and a, a sort of posh guy who used to give them lectures and get the chalkboard out, which they didn't like. But but Greenwood believed in Walter Winterbottom's approach, and he was very much part of a strong English coaching culture with Terry Venables and, and Bobby Robson. So, you know, he was no, he was no mug on Greenwood. And, and I would imagine that some of that influence did run, rub off on some of those players. Yeah, I think it was, I guess it was easier for that generation to get into management, wasn't it? Because it was, it was Prior to the the influx of great foreign coaches in the Premier League, uh, you wouldn't see you probably wouldn't see those guys getting jobs now with the CVs they had at the time. I mean, Phil Thompson managed Liverpool, of course, for a while. You know, as, as caretaker manager. I knew Mick Mills as a manager before the, this World Cup. I was like, I don't remember him playing. <laughs> <laughs> was that at um, Was it Stoke City that he managed? Stoke City, yeah. Yeah, not a great success, as I recall. Uh, but yeah, uh, Trevor Brooking and Trevor Brooking became a sort of um, Ron Greenwood, Walter Winterbottom type character, didn't he? Went to the FA and and actually helped oversee the reforms that produced St George's Park. You know, he was one of the people saying in the in the late nineties, we can't carry on like this. I remember him saying, actually talking to Spain, Trevor always used to say, what what English football doesn't produce is number tens. And this was at the time when Spain were producing Xavi and Iniesta. And he said, that's that's the deficit in English football. And at that time, Jack Wilshere was going to be the saviour of the English creative midfield player. You know, he was going to be the new great number 10. Uh, that didn't work out. But, but, but Trevor had good ideas and, and he 
and he understood that uh, England needed a um, proper structure in a university at St George's Park. That player development was what it was all about. And prior to that, player development had been an afterthought in English games. So, so he did leave his mark, Trevor, in, in, in lots of ways. I have to ask you, just, and it's a bit, it's a bit of a pushback. So obviously, contextually, English fans eulogise this World Cup. But as, as England go out now, and we've watched a lot of games after being really, really blown away by them against France and after and knowing the players I know and the attacking players, ultimately, I don't know if I'm going to miss them that much from this tournament with the greatest respect. And, and like, so what's your thoughts on that? Just from a real, just fresh look at it. I want to, I wanted to come out of this tournament thinking, oh, this was an amazing England team that we really missed from the semifinals, but I'm not sure they are. They, they petered out. Yeah, I think that's fair comment. I, I think the nostalgia is based on this, this idea that because they didn't lose the game, they didn't deserve to go out. And then when you start, when that's your starting point, you start to build a luster around the team and you say, look at all these brilliant players, you know, and, and Ron Greenwood really knew what he was doing. But actually, if you go into a second round and you and you draw both games nil-nil, you get what you deserve, which, which, whichever way you want to spin it, you know. Those second round games could have been, that could have been round of 16 and quarter final. And are we saying... Uh, that those performances were good enough to get through a round of 16 and a quarter final. Well, clearly not because they didn't, they didn't win either game. Hmm. So it's I think more... they might've approached the West Germany game differently though, if it that's was a last 16 game. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. But then why, why be cautious in a, in your first group game and put the pressure on yourself in the second? Again, I think it's because they had this um, mental block about playing Germany and German football. I think that's a very interesting point about that about that mental block because that to me that's where it all goes wrong in every which way and I think deep down Don Howe and Ron Greenwood would have known it too we screwed up here we should have gone after them more but they just they just took a step back when that was the moment to take a step forward and press down on the Germans because they were very vulnerable I mean we're talking about this is the next game after the disgrace of Hihon mm. the, the Austrian game and I mean the pressure on the Germans was immense um, and the pressure on the English was different it was an opportunity for them to take their best step forward, but it just didn't work out. I'm a bit like you, Rob. I'm just disappointed. I'm disappointed for them. Yeah. Um. But then I, but then I imagine in my head. Then I imagine in my head if they had gotten through a France England World Cup semi final would have been fascinating too. But the way the French, as we've discussed, if the French weren't the team at the start of the tournament that they I are bet now, Patrick Battiston would have preferred a France England semi final. <laughs> what? Peter Shilton was not going to do that to him. Guaranteed. Well, he had. Well, Jesus, I tell you, he 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 had one shot of coming out for a ball in another World Cup and he couldn't make it. So I'd say Battiston would have been. Fine. I was just going to say that. Had he done that to Maradona in 1986, we might be having a different discussion. <laughs> <now>. <laughs> oh, dearie me. Twice, in that... fact. Twice he could have done that to Maradona. <laughs> there are these teams, though, throughout that we've we've just kind of, we've not mourned because that's too severe a word, but like we, we've regretted their loss. Like Scotland, to me, were a huge yeah, loss in the group yeah. stage. I've, I've said it repeatedly that that Scottish side was so good that it would have been very interesting to see them in the second phase. But I, I also like, you know, I was a Man United fan, grew up, I wanted to see Bra Robbo doing his stuff. And he was quintessentially Robbo in this tournament. For me, he's the outstanding England player of the tournament. This is where he goes from like, Lieutenant quite good to Captain Fantastic. You know, I mean, he just goes up. It's like an escalator, he just goes up. You know, the goal, and then by the end of the tournament, he's the target for the opposition. I'm just, I'm just wondering, from 82, as a legacy piece for English football, was there, like, given the fact, as you say, that Brooking and Keegan step away, Greenwood steps away, Bobby Robson comes in a couple of days after this, this defeat, uh, it's already been preordained pretty much. 
I'm just wondering what the is is there a legacy from '82 going forward in English football, or is it just a piece of itself? I think there was continuity from uh, Greenwood to Robson. That's the main thing because in the appointment of England managers, the FA have tended to appoint the the opposite of the guy who went before. Uh, they've done that time and time again, you know, to try and correct the previous mistake. In this instance, they didn't really. Ron Greenwood and uh, Bobby Robson were kind of uh, spiritually connected, if you like. So, so the work that Ron Greenwood did carried on into the Robson era. That there's at least that to be said for it. And I think on the on the on the morning front, um, on the nostalgia front, this team is is thought of very fondly, but not nearly as fondly as the Italian '90 team, for example, Terry Venables' team in 1996. And the England team that went to the European Championship in 2004, that was the kind of zenith of the golden generation. That was the biggest missed opportunity. Every player of the last 20 years says that's the tournament. If they were going to win one, that's the one they should have won. So 82 does have this glow around it, but there have been much bigger blowouts by England since. And I guess the um, the, the legacy also would be that if, if you looked at the 82 team and then looked at 86 and 90, there wasn't a huge difference in approach or, or style or, or managerial philosophy. So at least from 82 through to 90, uh, the, the England were on a, a consistent path. It wasn't a successful path, but it was, it was actually more coherent now in retrospect than people felt it was at the time because the 70s and the 80s were scarred by this sense of entitlement that the English built up from 1966. England managers in the 70s and 80s worked in this tremendously febrile atmosphere generated by these the, the delusions of 66 and, and also, frankly, the press circulation war. So um, there was nothing there was nothing calm or rational about the environment that England teams worked in. But when I look at it now, you know, you feel that 82 really was the start of a, on the pitch at least, a relatively a stable period, although Bobby Robson had his moments in European Championships, which were disastrous for him. But in but in World Cups, there, there were some credible performances. Mick, tell us about the kit truck. Uh, are we Will we do a quiz or will I just reel them off? I oh, know, quiz. Like, I personally want to guess what they put on this England kit truck. Mick has found the contents of the English kit truck for the 1982 World Cup, and he sent us a WhatsApp saying, I'm going to quiz you. I'm like, I'm Uh-oh. ready. I'm ready. I'm going to get zero. Uh, it's no, okay. this, is, this is where all the book research all... pays off, Paul. This is what it was all about. <laughs> Don't worry, Paul. You're all going to get zero. Um, uh, okay, so we're going to do this. Okay, if we're going to do Multiple it... Multiple choice or something. You better. No, <laughs> that's you talking about. We're going to do this in classic classic 80s quiz mode. We're going to have a game of blankety-blank, all right? So I'm going to give you... I'm going to give you a number, and you got to tell me what it is, all right? Is right. it just me you... doing this, or is everybody... Oh, no, we're all, we're all, we're all, we're Everybody in, everybody in, Paul, wouldn't do that to you. We've, we've all been embarrassed in these quizzes. Oh, uh, here. Ah, uh, listen, there's no embarrassment here. The only embarrassment here is uh, for, well, elements uh, of the... As a clue going forward, there are elements here of Ringo Starr going to Rishikesh with the Beatles with a suitcase full of baked beans, all right? So if you're kind of... That's worth keeping at the back of your mind when you're trying to think what some of these are, right? They couldn't have had the paella. No, no way. Uh, or the ice for the water. Okay, 120 blanks. Pairs of football in? boots. Uh, Fingers, fish fingers. Oh, we're all on the right track. Well, this is actually a bit, bit more boring than that. 120 training kits, all right? Okay. <laughs> Eight sets of blanks and seven sets of blanks. They're the same thing, but slightly different colours. Eight sets of jerseys. Well done, jerseys. Rob. You got yeah, it. You, you got it. That. Eight sets of white kits, seven and sets seven of red, the red kits. Ones. Mm. 30 blanks. Um, perming. 
perming, machi- perming curlers. In fairness, it's a good shout. I, Paul gets the points for that. Come on. Absolutely. Paul gets a point for that because he's getting true. right into it's the spirit true. of it. And we're getting into the interesting stuff in a minute. But that was 30 footballs. They just thought 30 would be fine, be loads. Loads. And they wouldn't share any of them with the El Salvadorians. The, That's disgraceful. And they had a big problem. And they had a big problem because every time a ball went out over the fence, because people could go and watch the training that time, the kids used to run off with the footballs. So they they went seriously close to running out of footballs. Okay, here we go. 144 packets of blanks. Think Keegan. Col- Coleman's curry powder. Very close. <laughs> think think Keegan advertisements from the early 80s. Anything coming? Oh, Raljex. Oh. For, for his back. <laughs> Yeah. Very close. 144 packets of breakfast cereal. I'm assuming it was shredded wheat, but I don't know. Uh, 1,200 <laughs> packets of Y rather than X. 1,200 packets of Y. Something that you might use if you're stressed out on the sideline. Gite, smoke cigars. What might the boys be doing to ease you're off You're telling the me they brought 1,200 packets of cigarettes with them? Uh, <laughs> angry headlines for the red top. <laughs> 1,200 um, packets of chewing gum. Now, here we are. We're now in the ri- now we're in the Ringo Starr section, right? Do you know what's happening now? Somebody is going around in Hehan and these places checking under the bench to see how many managers have left chewing gum underneath the seats. Okay, here we are in the Ringo Starr section, all right? 36 bottles of blank. Give us some clue here. Think of your breakfast. Robinson's barley water. Double diamond. Double diamond, wouldn't that be nice? Robinson's Barley. Actually, they did bring, I forgot to put that, they did bring diluted orange and lemon drink, which I presume was <laughs> Robinson's Barley water. They brought 36 bottles of brown sauce to Spain. <laughs> How do you know this, Mick? Where the hell did you find this out? This was in the Irish Evening Press. It was an interview. Oh, uh, and kid. that guy's going to be manufactured. It was. Oh, no, 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 no. Let's they make the English look like kind of Philistines. No, no. It's, an interview, it's an interview with the kit manager. Interview with the right, well, this, is, this should have gone in my book. I'm, I'm heartbroken. That's There's it. also to finish it off. I won't even. Second I won't even. I won't even edition. inflict this stuff on you. They bought seventy thousand England badges. They bought pennants and postcards. The physio Fred Street brought thirty four videos, and he brought his own television set to play the videos on because they wouldn't work on the Spanish TVs. How he knew that before he went out, I don't know. That's because <laughs> that's the type of guy he was. Attention to detail. Sport There's the kit truck, boys. That was early sports <laughs> science, wasn't it? All that. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for joining us. A pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. That was brilliant. Thanks, Paul. Great stuff. Brilliant to chat to Paul. This is almost the end of part one. Mick, we don't even do a team of the day. We just maybe, maybe need to pick out a couple of players that are in the reckoning. But who, who seriously, outside of Brian Robson, is going to put their nose into the greatest World Cup game of all time that's coming in part two? Oh man, I don't know. This like this almost seems insulting to the people who are going out are going to mention because the chances of making the team are slim. Are slim to fucking none. Uh I don't know. Who would you put in there? I like from the English side of things, I thought Terry Butcher had a good old cloggy kind of a you know kind of cloggy. That's not even a word. He had a good game. Yeah, let's just go with Robbo. Let's just go with Robbo and, yeah. and look ahead to the nominee. Yeah. yeah, I think so. <laughs> Kieran yeah, is already yeah, moving yeah, on. It's gonna be good. Brazil, Italy. The I'm, voice I'm, of reason. Eaten my, I've eaten my starter. I want the main course. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, waiter. Oh, would you like another right, drink? No, I would not like another drink. I want kickoff in Brazil versus Italy. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Really? Yeah, it is. See, I'm more of a main course guy than the dessert fella, right? So right. this is, you know, this is the main course. I've got the knife and fork. I'm ready to rock. Let's just, let's get there. Let's go there. One last thing, Rob. One yes. last thing before yeah. we go. Yeah. It would be only right as England leave this World Cup 
to go out on a song. No. What song though? Uh, Mick, I think I think you can give us the song. Do we have a song? Oh well, it has to be. Oh, but there's always a song. There's always there's a song. always a song, Rob. Yeah, eighty-two World Cup. There's a million songs. Harry Butcher released a, a single songs. that year, did he? No, no. Go on. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. With with Duran Duran. Um, <laughs> no, it's the. It's got to be the England World Cup single, Ooh. which was entitled quite aptly, I think. This time we'll get it right. Oh my god! Nearly, you nearly got it right. Let's. Oh, cringe! I'm sure the music won't keep me cringing with it. No, it's a classic. Adios. Mm-hmm.